Well, it's good to be with you again uh, this morning, and I know that some of you are joining us this morning having not been here last night, and I don't want to spend a lot of time rehearsing what we did last night, but just to set the context for what we're doing uh, over this weekend in terms of the Bible talks, you'll see that the title is um, The Things That Matter Most, and just to give a little flavor to that, let me share an illustration that comes from a book by Stephen Covey. It's called First Things First, and Stephen Covey is something of a guru when it comes to management technique in business. His books have sold probably millions of copies by now, and he tells the story of a time management expert who was speaking to a group of business students. He pulled out a one-gallon wide-mouthed jar and set it on the table in front of him. Then he took about a dozen or so fist-sized rocks and jar. When no more rocks would fit inside, he then asked the class, Is this jar full? Everyone answered, Yes. Ah, he says, he reached under the table once more and pulled out a bucket of gravel. He poured some into the jar. He shook the jar so that the gravel worked its way in between the rocks. And then he asked again, is this jar full? By this time, the class was onto him, so they said, probably not. Good, he replied. He reached under the table again. This time, he brought out a bucket of sand. He dumped the sand in it, went into all the places between the rocks and between the gravel. And once more he asked, is the jar full? No, the class shouted. Good, he asked again. Then he grabbed a pitcher of water and he poured it in until the jar was full to the brim. And then he asked the class, what was the point of my illustration? One eager beaver said, well, the point is that no matter how full your schedule is, if you try really hard, you can always fit more things into it. <laughs> no, the speaker said, that's not the point. The point is this. If you don't put the big rocks in first, you won't get them in at all. And that's really what we're trying to explore in these three sessions. The things that matter most, putting first things first when it comes to the work of God. And this morning, I want to turn to Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, chapter 6, and I'm just going to read uh, the first 14 verses or so of that chapter. Nehemiah, chapter 6. Let me encourage you to turn to it because this is where we will be focusing our attention. And let us hear the word of God. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Onu. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. 
In it it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I said to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mahetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And may God bless to us his word. The word work is a key word in the book of Nehemiah, where it appears 20 times. And in this particular chapter, it occurs three times. In verse 3 of chapter 6, Nehemiah says, I am doing a great work. In verse 9, he says, in relation to his enemies, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. And then in verse 16, when the wall was complete, he says that those who saw it perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And that's what this book is about. It is about the work of God. And the work of God, of course, is his work. He begins it, and he completes it. But this book shows us that the way in which God chooses to do his work in his world is through his people. And that means that there's a work in which all of us, if we profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, ought to be engaged in. And if we are not engaged in some way in that work, we should be asking, why not? Because there is nothing more important in this world than the work of the kingdom of God. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 9, verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. There is a work to be done. And conferences such as these remind us in a very powerful way of the nature of that work. And this is 
the time to do it. And this book of Nehemiah is, among other things, a call to all of us to be up and working for the Lord. But you can be sure that wherever there is a good work being done for God, wherever that happens to be, there will also be opposition to it. And we see that particularly in this book of Nehemiah. We see it right at the beginning of the story. It comes from outside through two individuals called Sanballat and Tobiah who ridiculed and mocked and intimidated those who were working on the wall. And that was a threat to the work which Nehemiah addressed by implementing a series of measures to protect the people as they worked on the wall. You can read about that in chapter 4. But the threat to the work didn't just come from outside. It also came from inside. Through a division that arose among the people themselves as the haves took advantage of the have-nots. Something which not only fractured their unity, but discredited their testimony. You can read about that in chapter 5. And again, Nehemiah took action by calling a public meeting at which he dealt with the issue by setting out the facts, appealing to their conscience, and telling them what needed to be done in order to put things right. But remember that behind all of what's going on here is the unseen adversary of God's people who is implacably opposed to every work of God. He is called Satan or the devil. He can be both a roaring lion and an angel of light. He is the sworn enemy of God and of Christ and of the church and of Christians. And not least of Christian mission. And he will use every device at his disposal to disable God's people and to stop God's work. And here in chapter 6, we see his hand once more as he mounts a series of attacks on Nehemiah himself. Now, Nehemiah, of course, was not immune to the general opposition that was being directed towards the Lord's people as they worked together upon the wall. He, too, had to bear the taunts and the sneers and the threats that were being made against them by those opposed to the work. Nor was he unaffected by the dissension that threatened to destroy their unity by sundering the fellowship, because it was to Nehemiah that the people had come with their complaint. And it was Nehemiah who had to call the people together in order to resolve the differences that had arisen between them. But the pressures that are being brought to bear upon him now take the form of a personal attack in which he becomes the target. And that is reflected in this chapter by the predominance of the personal pronouns I and me, because here it is Nehemiah himself who is coming under direct attack because of the position of leadership that he occupies and because of the particular responsibility that he has for the oversight of the work. And it will always be so. Because one sure way of damaging the work and of discouraging the workers is to go for the leaders. 
And that's the tactic which is being employed here against Nehemiah. And three particular devices are used by the enemy of our souls against this man of God. There is, in the first instance, an attempt to deflect him. Now, you will see from the details we're given at the beginning of this chapter, the work's now entered its final phase. And there's an intriguing little detail given in verse 1, which brings this out. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I'd not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me. Do you see what this is saying? The gaps in the broken down wall of Jerusalem have now been closed. And all that remains to be done is to set in place the doors in the gates. That in itself, however, was no minor task. Because to set those great doors in place was going to require a huge amount of scaffolding and lifting equipment, all of which had to be erected and positioned and moved manually, since they had none of the mechanization that's available to us today in construction. And it is therefore something of an understatement to say that only the doors needed to be set in the gates. But the point that's being made is that the work is almost finished. And with the work almost finished, there is but a limited opportunity for the enemies of God's people and for the powers of darkness to stop it from being completed. And that raises in my mind at least an important question. And the question is this. When do you think the opposition to the work of God's kingdom is at its strongest? Is it when the work is just beginning? Or is it when the work is almost finished? Now, I'm not sure I would want to give a definitive answer to that question, but what I think we're being reminded of here in this part of the book of Nehemiah is that sometimes the most difficult and challenging time in the work of the gospel and in personal discipleship is when you are approaching the end. Every year on Easter Monday, our youth club leaders back in Coleraine, where I was brought up, arranged a barbecue on Downhill Beach. The only catch was that you had to walk from Coleraine to Downhill, a distance of some eight miles. And I remember the first time I went to the barbecue, we met outside the courthouse at the bottom of the Castle Rock Road at nine o'clock in the morning. The only instruction we had to comply with was that because of the Easter Monday traffic, we were to use the back roads rather than the main roads as we made our way to downhill, which meant we turned off the Castle Rock Road and went via the Cranor Road and the Ballywoolen Road, which then rejoined the main road just about a mile or so from downhill. The outward journey wasn't too bad once we'd covered the first few miles, and when we arrived at downhill, the sausages and the burgers were already cooking. We had a few hours on the beach, we played a few games, and then it was time to go. We were told we wouldn't have to walk back because we'd be picked up along the way by some parents who would be providing a shuttle service to take us back to Coleraine. I was with Olive, now my wife, and another friend, and we set off from the beach expecting to get a lift before very long. But what we didn't know was that on the way back, you needed to stay on the main road rather than go by the back road in order to get your lift. 
And because we didn't know that, we went back the way we had come. It was all right for the first couple of miles, but after we'd walked a few more miles and there was still no sign of a lift, we began to realize something wasn't quite right, the most obvious thing being the absence of cars. But at that stage, there was no point in going back. We had to keep going, but our legs were tired. Our feet were sore. Our muscles ached. We just wanted to stop. But at that point, Olive's friend began to recite a little rhyme. It went like this. I had a good job and I left. I had a good job and I left. I had a good job for 35 bob and I left, right, left, right, left. Now we thought she'd lost it. But she encouraged us to get into it. And we did. And that marching rhyme got us to the end of the road. But that last mile was still the hardest of all. And that, friends, is one of the realities of the Christian life that's beginning to dawn upon me more and more. Whatever opposition you may have had to face from the world and the flesh and the devil at the beginning of your Christian life does not diminish as you come towards the end. In fact, the attacks may even become greater as you approach the finishing line. And that was what Nehemiah found. He'd almost completed the particular work that God had given him to do. But it is at this point that Sanballat and his friends, Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab, reemerge. And on hearing that the work is nearing its completion, they send a message to Nehemiah in verse 2, inviting him to meet them. They even suggested a possible venue for this little tete-a-tete to take place. It was to be in one of the villages on the plain of Ono, which was halfway between Jerusalem and Samaria. And they asked Nehemiah if he could meet them there so that they could confer together. On the face of it, it looked like a perfectly reasonable request. They just wanted to have a discussion with Nehemiah. But Nehemiah refused the invitation. Come to the plain of Ono, they said. But Nehemiah said, verse 3, Oh no, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Why did he refuse? What harm could there have been in such a meeting? These men had opposed him, yes, but now they wanted to meet him. What was wrong with that? Yet Nehemiah saw that for all its sweet reasonableness, there was behind this invitation a hidden agenda. Because these men, as Nehemiah tells us in verse 2, intended to do him harm. How did he know? Did he have his informants? He may have had. But I think it much more likely that this was a matter of spiritual discernment on the part of Nehemiah because Nehemiah knew the kind of people he was dealing with in Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and he didn't allow himself to be taken in by them. And friends, we need that same discernment because this is one of the tactics that Satan frequently uses to impede the work of God. And it's very subtle. 
Because the way in which he deflects us from the work is not by encouraging us to get involved in something that we would immediately recognize as being detrimental to the gospel. That would be far too obvious. His way is to come to us with things that are altogether plausible and reasonable and even laudable. And what he seeks to do by means of this tactic is to get us to confuse the good with the best. There's a wonderful example of this at the outset of the ministry of Jesus. It's at the end of Mark chapter 1. You might like to keep a finger in Nehemiah and turn to the end of Mark 1. Jesus has had an extremely busy day. It began in the synagogue where he was confronted by the powers of evil and a demon-possessed man as he was teaching the people. But Jesus rebuked the demon and cast it out. It continued then with the healing of Simon's mother-in-law, who was ill with a fever. And then as night fell, there were yet more healings and more exorcisms as people of the town brought to Jesus all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And I'm quite sure that as the disciples of Jesus retired for the night, they would have been exhausted and yet at the same time exhilarated. Because these Galilean fishermen who had so recently become followers of Jesus must have been starting to think that their fame and their fortune was assured from now on. Because all the televangelists and all the faith healers that the world has ever seen or heard couldn't achieve in a lifetime what Jesus achieved in a single evening. But a big shock awaited them. And you see it in the interchange which takes place in verses 37 and 38 of Mark 1. The disciples have been searching for Jesus. But he's gone to a quiet place to pray. And by the time they find him, they're quite exasperated because sick people have been arriving all morning. The queues are already beginning to form. There's work to be done. And it's almost as if the disciples are saying to Jesus, Jesus, what on earth are you doing here? Everybody's looking for you. But Jesus says in verse 38, let us go on to the next towns. What for, Lord? Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And what a disappointment that must have been to the disciples. Because for them, as for many of Jesus' followers today, healing was so much more exciting than preaching. And now Jesus, who can heal in a way that nobody else can, Jesus says he's going to the other towns not to heal, but to preach. Now that doesn't mean he won't do any more healings. In fact, in the very next paragraph, we see him doing just that as he heals a leper. But what Jesus does here is to distinguish the good from the best. That's why he doesn't go back to those cues of expectant people. Because Jesus knows people don't enter the kingdom of God by having their felt needs met. Jesus knows that people don't enter the kingdom of God just by having their bodies healed. Jesus knows that people only enter the kingdom of God as they repent and believe the gospel. And that's the important thing for him. And so he resists this attempt to deflect him by not allowing the good, that is the healing of the sick, 
to become the enemy of the best, that is the preaching of the gospel. And that's an important principle for us to learn and to apply, and not least in the work of mission. But let's come back to Nehemiah because the personal attack that's mounted against him doesn't end with the attempt by his opponents to deflect him. It continues with an attempt to discredit him. Sanballat, as you will see from verse 5, made his request for this meeting for a fifth time. Only this time he sent with it an open letter. Now, in the ancient world, just as in the modern world, letters were normally sealed. But this particular letter was unsealed. That meant that even though it was personally addressed to Nehemiah, anybody could read it. I suppose a modern equivalent of the open letter is the sending of an email which is easily copied and easily forwarded to hundreds, if not thousands of people at the click of a button. And untold damage can be done to somebody's reputation in that way. And the same goes for other forms of social media. And we need to be particularly careful how we use these things. And not least in the church and in Christian organizations. Look then at the text of this letter, verse 6. It's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king, and you have also set up prophets to to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Here then is a letter which is clearly designed to damage Nehemiah's reputation by calling his integrity into question. And notice how they fan these rumors. Verse 6, it is reported among the nation, and Geshem also says it is true. Geshem was a prominent Arab official who had the ear of the king. And what Sanballat is doing is to add wit to the accusations he is making by dropping in the name of Geshem. And isn't that how rumors are often strengthened in the telling? Did you hear about so-and-so? No, I didn't. Well, I wouldn't have believed it myself, but I was talking to Jack, and he says it's true enough, and you know Jack, if he says it's true, it must be right. But this letter doesn't just contain rumor, it also contains threat. Verse 7, now the king will hear of these reports, and you don't want that to happen, do you? So now, let us come and take counsel together. Here then is this lethal cocktail of rumor and threat as they try by means of this open letter to discredit the servant of God who had given himself so unsparingly to the work of rebuilding the walls. What is he to do? What would you do? If someone wrote that kind of letter about you. Because these are among the most unnerving and upsetting of letters to receive. And yet there are few Christian leaders who do not receive them at some time during the course of their ministry. I've had a few in my time. Nehemiah could, of course, have gone to Susa to protest to the king against the untruthfulness of those rumors, but had he done so, he would have absented himself from Jerusalem for possibly three months. And had that happened, the work would have remained unfinished, and his opponents would have made sure it was never restarted. The response of Nehemiah, therefore, was simply to keep on with the work. 
Because for him, the completion of the work that God had given him to do was of infinitely greater importance than the things that people were saying about him. Which weren't true anyway. And so he stands firm, even in the face of this assault on his reputation. And you see what he does? First of all, he refutes their allegations. Verse 8, Then I sent to them, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Then he goes on, verse 9, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. And friends, it's so obvious, isn't it? It's all that Satan ever wants. He wants your hands to drop from the work. He doesn't want your hands to open a Bible. He doesn't want your hands to be clasped together in prayer. He doesn't want your hands to embrace somebody in need. He doesn't want your hands to dig into your wallet for the work of the gospel. He doesn't want your hands to take the bread and the cup at the Lord's table. He doesn't want your hands to do the things they should be doing if they're consecrated to the service of God. They wanted our hands to drop from the work. But now, O God, says Nehemiah, in his great bullet prayer, now, O God, strengthen my hands. Is that your prayer today? For yourself and for those who are serving in this mission? And is it still your prayer when the devil seeks to discredit you with insinuation and innuendo? And attempt to distract him. An attempt to discredit him. But they're not done yet, because thirdly, there is an attempt to deceive him. In verses 10 to 13, we read of a man named Shemaiah, whom Nehemiah seems to have known, and who gave him what purported to be a message from God, since in verse 12, Nehemiah calls it a prophecy. And Shemaiah said to Nehemiah, verse 10, let us meet together, another invitation, In the house of God, within the temple, let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Now, there's some uncertainty over what precisely Shemaiah was proposing. Some think he was inviting Nehemiah to seek sanctuary within the temple precincts, but others think he was suggesting they took refuge in the inner sanctuary of the temple. That is the holy place from which all but the priests were specifically excluded on pain of death. But whatever it was that Shemaiah was inviting Nehemiah to do, it was done under the guise of prophecy, for which Shemaiah claimed divine inspiration. And what Nehemiah had to be able to do in this instance was to recognize the difference between a true word from God and a pretended word from God. How did he do it? How did he discern between the true and the false? And what made him so sure, as he tells us in verse 12, that God had not sent him, but that Shemaiah had given him a pretended word from God, which he'd uttered at the behest of Sanballat and Tobiah, who had in fact hired him and were paying for his services. It wasn't, I think, that Shemaiah was simply a charlatan who did not have a genuine prophetic gift. Because there's every reason to suppose Shemaiah could speak the word of the Lord and had done so at other times with true prophetic insight. And even though on this occasion he allowed himself to be bought and thus perverted his ministry, it's not Shemaiah's lack of credentials which raises the doubt in Nehemiah's mind. The clue, I think, and it's a very important one, is found in verse 13. 
where he says that to act upon Shemaiah's message would have led him into sin. That's why I think the reference about going into the temple is to the holy of holies, which means that what Shemaiah was proposing, albeit as a word of prophecy, would have caused both of them to do something which the written word of God clearly forbade them to do. And that's what enables Nehemiah to decide that this cannot be a true word from God because no true word from God will ever lead you into sin. Therefore, what Shemaiah was saying could not be a true word from God. And Nehemiah recognized it as such and dismissed it as the deception that it was. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, started off his life as a slave trader but finished it as a minister in the Church of England. He once wrote these words, and they're well worth pondering. One of the best quotes I have come across. He said, The Holy Spirit has not promised to reveal new truths, but to enable us to understand what we read in the Bible. And if we venture beyond the pale of Scripture, we are upon enchanted ground and exposed to all the illusions of imagination and enthusiasm. And in today's church, sadly, there are many people who for lack of discernment are venturing onto that enchanted ground and are in danger of being deceived and of being led even into sin. But not Nehemiah. So verse 15, the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. As I read these verses in Nehemiah chapter 6, I can't help but see in them a greater than Nehemiah. Because in Nehemiah and in the work that he did, we are pointed forward, are we not? To another servant of the Lord who was sent into this world by his father and who said that his food was to do the will of him who sent him and to accomplish his work. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and at his birth he was given the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. He was therefore the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That was his mission. The Apostle John spells it out for us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 when he says the reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That explains why as soon as he was born, King Herod destroyed all the baby boys in Bethlehem in an attempt to get rid of him. And as soon as he begins his public ministry, the devil is there testing him and tempting him so that the mission will not be accomplished and the work will not be completed. And over the course of the next three years, there is wave after wave of opposition to deflect him and to discredit him and to deceive him in order to prevent him from doing the will of his Father. But friends, today we have a gospel to preach because of the work that was done by him. And as he hung on that cross, as we shall remember this coming Good Friday, he was able to cry out in a loud voice, It is finished! Do you remember the famous line from the television quiz, Mastermind? Which Magnus Magnuson originally presented and how when the buzzer sounded midway through the last question, he would pause and say, I've started. So I'll finish. 
That's exactly what Jesus has done. Because he began and finished the work that was necessary for your salvation and for mine. And where he has begun his good work in you, even with all the opposition of Satan and the world and the flesh against that work in your soul, he will complete it on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people. I love the words that are recorded in verse 16 of Nehemiah 6. The walls were finished, Nehemiah says, when all our enemies heard it, all the nations round us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And what happens here at the completion of the building of the wall is a picture of what will happen at the end of time. The wicked will be forced to acknowledge with eternal shame that all their plots were foiled and that none of them succeeded. And at the same time, the righteous will rejoice in the salvation of their God and will praise him for delivering them from their enemies and rescuing them from their foes. Some of you may know the name of Howard Guinness. He qualified in medicine. But he never practiced because he gave himself to the establishment of student work with the InterVarsity Fellowship, first in Canada and then in Australia. In 1936, when he was just 33 years old, he wrote a little book called Sacrifice, which was subtitled A Challenge to Christian Youth. In the epilogue to the book, he wrote these words, which are perhaps even more pertinent today than when he first penned them. He said this, Where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in his service? Where are those who love him and the souls of men more than their own reputations or comfort or very life? Where are the men who say no to self? who take up Christ's cross to bear it after him, who are willing to be nailed to it in college or office, home or mission field, who are willing, if need be, to bleed, to suffer and to die on it. Where are the men who are willing to pay the price of vision? Where are the men of prayer? Where are the men who, like the psalmist of old, count God's word of more importance to them than their daily food? Where are God's men and women in this day of God's power? But Howard Guinness lived as he wrote because it wasn't just a case of words on a page. In later life, he was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. He had an invitation to speak at the Keswick Convention, but the progress of the illness was such he knew it would be his last. Here's what he said in the address that he gave, having written those words so early in his life. He said, I never stood a chance of running a four-minute mile, but this last lap I would love to be the best of all. Can I summon all my energies for one last supreme effort and refusing to believe the evidence of these aching muscles and dragging feet, hurl myself towards the tape to break it, a gallant runner at least, if not a good one? I must, for at the tape, stands none other than the judge himself. And all around in the great unseen arena are the spectators in their billions, the great cloud of witnesses who are already raising the thunderous shout of encouragement which is spurring me to the supreme effort of my life. 
Friends, I don't know what's down the track for me. Neither do you. I don't know what that last lap will hold for me. Nor do you. But whatever it might be, I don't want to drop out of the race. And even if I can't do it physically, I want to keep running towards the finishing line, looking always to him who is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. May God bless to us his word.